We read this evening in Paul's epistle to the Philippians in the third chapter and beginning at the first verse. The third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians beginning at the first verse. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of, which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. We come this evening in our study of this epistle to the Romans to the 18th verse in the 6th chapter. The 18th verse in the 6th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now this is one of those verses, and we've come across previous instances and examples of this in this very chapter in which the great apostle 
as it were, sums up the position of the Christian. You will have noticed that in uh, developing his argument in this chapter, he keeps on doing that. He works out an argument, then sums it up. That is, of course, of the very essence of true teaching. And here, having worked out his argument in verses 16 and 17, he, as it were, sums it up, and again arrives at a fundamental conclusion about the Christian men, and particularly in terms, once more, of this objection which was being brought forward against his teaching by certain people, to the effect, uh, namely, that his teaching was that because we are not under the law, but uh, under grace, we can therefore continue in sin. In other words, I am suggesting that this 18th verse is in many ways parallel to verse 11. It more or less does uh, for this section what verse 11 did uh, for its section. Having worked out his argument in verses 1 to 10, he therefore says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, and but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the truth about the Christian. Well, now here he is stating it again, the same truth really, but that he is putting it obviously this time in terms of this illustration of slavery, which he has been using as his argument in verses 16 and 17. Now, it's important that we should thus understand the apostle's characteristic method. There is something else that is characteristic about this method also. You will generally find that he gives us one of these summaries of the Christian and his position before he goes on to make an appeal or a practical exhortation. Now, you remember how he did that in verse 11. Having told us that we are to regard ourselves, because it's true of us, as dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he then goes on to his appeal, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body, etc. The appeal of verses 12 and 13. Well, now he's doing exactly the same thing here. Here is the statement about us in verse 18. Well, then because of that, he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness. In other words, because what he says in verse 18 is true of us, he has a right to make the appeal of verse 19 and the following verses. Indeed, because of what is true of us in verse 18, it follows inevitably that he must make the appeal which he makes in verse 19. And so, in every way, he proves the utterly foolish and futile character of this charge which is made against him and which he has put before us in verse 15. Now then, there are the mechanics of this most important verse that we're looking at this evening. Having thus seen its position in its setting, and having seen how the apostle came to make the statement, we can now proceed to consider it. The first uh, things I would say about it are general. Here is one, for instance. 
This is a statement of fact. It isn't an exhortation. He's not exhorting us to free ourselves from sin. He is telling us that we are free from sin. It's an exhortation. It's not an exhortation. It is a statement of fact. This is the position of the Christian. This is the truth about the Christian. Secondly, it is something which is true of all Christians. Now I want to emphasize that equally. It is true of all Christians. It isn't merely true of some Christians who've gone on to have a second experience. It is true of all Christians. No amen, I notice now. However, well now then, that's significant probably. Well now, let's, 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 uh, let's watch this. This is the, a, a very vital part of the whole argument of the Apostle at this point. This isn't merely something that is true, I say, of certain special Christians who have got something which the ordinary Christian hasn't got. No, he is making it as a universal statement about all Christians. If you like, I'll put it in another way. You cannot be a Christian at all except this be true of you. Now then, let us work this out together. What then is it that he's saying is true of every one of us who is a Christian? Well, you notice he starts with his negative. Here it's put like this in the authorized. Being then made free from sin. But there's a better translation. Having been freed from sin. That's the negative that's true about us. And what does that mean? Well, let me add some more negatives. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that we are now entirely free from sin in every respect. That there is no sin left in us at all. And that we have finished once and forever with sin itself, or sin as such. It doesn't mean that. He's not teaching sinless perfection as the whole context shows, and especially the exhortation in verse 19 which follows. So we mustn't interpret being free from sin as meaning that literally there is no sin left in us in any shape or form whatsoever, and that we have finished it completely and absolutely. It doesn't mean that. Secondly, it does not mean that we are free from the sinful nature. Now, those who've been following here regularly will understand these uh, distinctions. It does not mean, I say, that the sinful nature has been taken right out of us. You remember we've drawn a distinction between the old men and the sinful nature. The old man has gone. He is dead. We are finished with him once and forever, but not with the sinful nature. The sinful nature remains, as we've been reminded in verse 12, in our mortal bodies. Now then, so I say it doesn't mean that we are free altogether from the sinful nature. It means less than that, it means more than that. Let me expand that. It means less in this way, that if we say that we are entirely free from the sinful nature, again it means sinless perfection, which he is not teaching and never teaches anywhere. But then on the other hand, I say that it means more than that. And I mean this. 
There is a sense in which we are free from sin as a power. Free not only from the tyranny of the sinful nature, but also from the tyranny of the devil and all his forces and even hell itself. So that we must be clear to differentiate here and realize that he's not saying just that we are free from the sinful nature. And my last negative would be this. He is not saying that we are free from temptations, that we'll never again be tempted, that we'll never again be worried by an evil thought which the devil may throw at us, or that we'll never again be troubled by the motions of sin which remain in the sinful body, or in the body of sin as he calls it, or the mortal body. He's not saying that. Now I'm putting these negatives for this reason, that there are many good Christian people who are troubled like about this thing. They're troubled like that. They seem to think that the mere fact that they're tempted somehow means that these great statements of the scriptures don't apply to them. So it is important that we should not interpret the phrase free, being freed from sin, as meaning that we no longer are subject to temptation or that we are no longer will ever be worried by what I call, and Paul calls in chapter 7, the motions of sin that are in the sinful body. Well then, what does it mean positively? And here we should find ourselves in a happy position. It means clearly the opposite of what he says in the rest of the verse. You see, there's this sort of parallel that he's so fond of. Being then made free from sin, well, what are you now then? What's the opposite of being free from sin? Oh, it is to be servants of righteousness. And remember, the word servants here, as in all these verses we're dealing with, should mean slaves. So, as the positive means uh, to be slaves of righteousness, what the negative means is that we are no longer slaves to sin. That's the parallel. We are slaves to righteousness, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from that. We've been delivered from that. We are no longer in that position of bondage. Let me use the terms I've used before. As Christians, and you can't be a Christian without this being true of you, you are no longer under the slavery and the tyranny and the dominion and the whole bondage of sin. That's the thing that we've been delivered from. Now, you notice that the apostle, in other words, is repeating what he has already said several times in this chapter. Take verse 2. God forbid how shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? And you remember our interpretation there was that to say that we died to sin means not the various things that I've been dismissing again this evening, but that it means we have died to the reign of sin, to the rule of sin, to the dominion of sin, all that. Sin personified and sin is represented by the devil and all his powers and all his subtlety. We are dead to that. So he said it in verse 2, but he said it again in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. And remember, it means once and forever. It's again in verse 7. He that is dead is freed from sin. Exactly the same thing. He that is dead is freed from sin, being then made free from sin. You see, it's a repetition. And you've got it also by implication in verse 10. 
where he says that our Lord, in that he died, he died unto sin once. And he says the same is true of us in verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You have died unto it. Now then, it's just a repetition of all that. And in a sense, he even says it in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Well, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And as we saw last week, it is the whole implication of verse 17. God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, the slaves of sin, but you're no longer that. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine into which you were delivered or to which you were committed. Very well. Now then, here is a most important statement. The apostle says that this is true of us as Christians. And indeed, as the argument has been working out in verse 17, the very fact that we believe the gospel at all is proof positive that this verse 18 is true of us. No man can believe the gospel of Christ while he is a slave to sin. It's impossible. You see, the apostle has put it, as I reminded you last week, in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. Now there is a man who is a slave of sin and all its power. And he cannot believe. So the very fact that a man believes the gospel is a proof that he has been freed from sin. Now this is, I say, a great and a crucial statement. It is the great argument of the whole of this chapter. And therefore we must be perfectly clear about it. This is the fundamental statement of the New Testament about the Christian man. He is no longer the slave of sin as a power, as a force, as a reigning body. He has been set free from that. There's the negative. Well, let me hurry to the positive. Being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. Now, that's the authorized translation. And unfortunately, it isn't good enough, it isn't strong enough. It's what it says is true, but it might be misinterpreted. Ye became the servants of righteousness. A better translation is this. Ye were enslaved to righteousness. Because that is exactly what the apostle says. Not that we have become the slaves only, but we have been enslaved to righteousness. We were before enslaved to sin. We have now become enslaved to righteousness. Those who followed the argument last week can see why I'm emphasizing and stressing this. We were delivered over unto the form of doctrine. Yes, and now he's putting that in a different way by saying that we have become enslaved to righteousness. Remember the meaning of the word righteousness? He means by it the type of life that is pleasing to God. It doesn't just mean a bit of morality. It means this original righteousness which God gave men. It means uprightness. 
in the highest moral sense. Indeed, it means, as he will put it specifically in the next verse, holiness. And I shall explain in a moment why I'm emphasizing the meaning of the word righteousness. Very well. Now, our position is that we have been enslaved to righteousness. What does this mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that we admire righteousness. It doesn't just mean that we desire to be righteous. It doesn't just mean that we are attempting to be righteous or attempting to practice righteousness in our daily lives. It includes all that, but it's much stronger than that. What the apostle says is that we've become slaves to righteousness, nothing less. Not servants, we are the slaves of righteousness. Now then, what does this mean? Well, as I'm saying, it means this. We have come under the power of righteousness. We are under the control of righteousness. We are under the influence of righteousness. Look at it like this. As once we were tyrannized over and ruled by and governed by sin, we are now, if you like, tyrannized over and governed and ruled by righteousness itself. Now that's the statement. And from that we deduce the following truths. This then is something that is true of every one of us from the moment of our regeneration. He's talking about Christians, any Christian. So I say from the moment we are regenerate, it is true to say of us that we are no longer slaves of sin, we are the slaves of righteousness. You see, therefore, how utterly wrong and unscriptural it is to separate justification and sanctification. And to say that a man can be justified without being sanctified. Or to say that a man can receive his justification and perhaps years later go on and receive his sanctification. Now, according to this argument, that is not only wrong, it is completely impossible. From the moment we cease to be the slaves of sin, we are the slaves of righteousness. There is no interval in between. There is no no man's land. There is no neutral position. You are either the slave of sin or else you are the slave of righteousness. And the moment you're delivered from that, you're in this. So there is no gap between justification and sanctification. Sanctification starts from the moment of our rebirth. I go further. There is really no choice in this matter of sanctification. The moment we believe, the moment we are made regenerate, the process begins. You remember how he puts it, the same apostle puts it in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1 and verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And if you are in Christ, all that is true of you immediately. Well now then, how does this work out? What is it to, to say that we are enslaved to righteousness? How does it work, I ask? Well, it works like this. To be born again means that a principle of new life is put into us. Yes, but that principle of new life is a principle of righteousness. Because we are made partakers of the divine nature. So the new life that is given to a man at his moment of rebirth 
is a principle of righteousness. And it's a principle that begins to work at once in us, and it works as a power. The Apostle puts it in different form in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 like this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. That's the principle of righteousness working in us. It was put into us at the moment of regeneration, and that is how it works. It is working, it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do. And of course, uh, the teaching is that the Holy Spirit does precisely the same thing. Take, for instance, Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now, you notice the same thing is said of the two. The flesh lusteth, yes, but so does the spirit. And the moment a man has become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God is in him, and the Holy Spirit of God is lusting within him already, lusting to win him. Now, you get a parallel statement in a very interesting way in the epistle of James in the fourth chapter and the fifth verse. The authorized translation has it like this, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. But you'll find a very interesting and, as I think, very right translation in the margins of some of the Bibles. The spirit which he made to dwell in us yearneth for us even unto jealous envy. Now here is the Christian, you see. There are forces that are anxious to get him, to get his suffrage to use him. There's the power of evil and of sin. Yes, but this other spirit that God has given us is lusting on the other side, even into jealous envy. What for? Well, to win us to God, to win us to righteousness, to make us what God would have us be. So you've got these two forces. Now then, this is how this enslaving to righteousness works itself out. We are under this power that is lasting for us even to jealous envy in order that we might be finally perfect in the presence of God. It is the will of God, even your sanctification. So we can resolutely and confidently say this, that this work which God has begun in us, he will go on until it is absolutely perfect. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is his will for us, even our sanctification. He puts the principle of life in us, it's righteousness, and it works, and the Spirit works in it. And so the process will go on until we shall be finally faultless and blameless before him in glory. And he has many ways of doing this. I mustn't go into them this evening. But you know, in a sense, it's a terrible thing to be a Christian. The moment you and I become Christians, we must be very careful as to what we do. If you do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, you can expect chastisement. You can expect punishment. You can expect that you will find yourself in positions of difficulty and you'll be bewildered. What's it mean? Well, it means this, that God is perfecting you. God is sanctifying you. And if we will not allow him to sanctify us through the truth, he has these other measures and he brings them in. If it is God's will that we be sanctified, we will be sanctified. In other words, we are under the slavery of righteousness. We have become enslaved to it. And so it is that he brings it to pass. Very well. 
That is now our position. We were the slaves of sin. We are no longer that. As regards the tyranny and the reign of sin, we are free men. But we are not free because we are now the slaves of righteousness. That then is all that the apostle is concerned to say at this point, to establish his argument that it is monstrous and foolish to suggest that any man who believes this doctrine will then go on to draw the deduction, shall we then continue in sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Now that's all he's concerned to do. But we cannot leave it without indicating this, that we must still carry in our minds the way in which all this happens. There is no verse that I know of, in a sense, in the case of which it is so dangerous to take it out of its context as this verse we are looking at this evening. Imagine a man just picking out this verse and saying, being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. And beginning to work it out after his own imagination, he might say, oh, well, I can see it was our belief and our obedience that did this. But it isn't our obedience that does this. It isn't our believing that does this. What does it? Oh, it's the same thing that does this as does everything that the apostle is dealing with in the entire chapter. And what is that? It is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because being baptized into him, we are baptized into his death and baptized into his resurrection. It is the result of all that he has done for us. Now that was the great argument, you remember, of verses 3 to 10. We cannot deliver ourselves from slavery. We cannot make ourselves slave of righteousness. No, this is what is done to us. This is what happens to us. We were enslaved to sin. How? Because we were in Adam. Because of Adam's original transgression. That enslaved us all to sin. We didn't choose to be slaves to sin. We were born slaves to sin. In the same way, a man doesn't decide to be enslaved to righteousness. He is enslaved. It's done to him. He is put into this mold, as we saw last Friday evening. And so we must continue to bear in mind that what makes this verse possible and what produces this result in every one of us who is a Christian is that grace has taken hold of us, has delivered us from the bondage and the reign of sin and has put us into its own glorious captivity. It has bound us with the fetters of which we've just been singing. It has enslaved us to righteousness. Now that is the teaching. And that is why I was so careful over this translation. It isn't just enough to say that we have become the servants of righteousness. No, no. We have been enslaved to it. And that it is this power of grace, it is the reign of grace that has laid hold upon us. And we are in its mighty and its firm grip. If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And he makes us free from sin by making us his own slaves. He's bought us out of the market. We belong to him. We are now the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And therefore, his argument is that to continue in sin 
is something which is a sheer impossibility. Well, now there is our exposition of this 18th verse of this 6th chapter. But having done that, I now proceed to make a comment upon it. This is in many ways a crucial verse in the whole question of the Christian man and his behavior. Or if you prefer it, it's a crucial verse in the whole matter of the Christian men and ethics. And therefore, you see, it's a very up-to-date verse. Probably many of you in this congregation this evening are aware how topical this subject raised by this verse happens to be. It's a matter of very popular discussion just at this very moment. Now, I normally don't do this sort of thing, but I'm one of those who holds very strongly that the gospel of Jesus Christ should not merely be expounded as such and then left. It must be applied. It must be applied to our present condition and our everyday circumstances. And I know that probably many of you have been hearing about some statements that were made, I believe, last Sunday afternoon on the famous Brains Trust of the BBC on their television program. Now, I didn't see nor hear that program, but I did listen to the repeat sound track of that program on Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock. And it struck me as being extremely interesting. There was a question put there, and many people have mentioned it to me since, that's why I'm dealing with it, with it this evening, to show you how the gospel really answers all these problems. The question that was put was this, a very distinguished lawyer, a retired judge, Lord Burkett, had apparently said on some program, when asked what his religious position was, he said that once he had been a, a Christian, and not only that, he had been a Methodist lay preacher, but that uh, by now his position had changed. He said he still held on to the Christian ethic, but he no longer believed the Christian doctrines and the Christian dogma. Indeed, he said he'd rather like to describe himself as a Christian agnostic. Now, that was the question that was raised last Sunday afternoon on this brain's trust. And the question was therefore put in this form. Is it possible for a man to hold on to the Christian ethic and to believe in it and to practice it without the Christian doctrines? You see, that's the very matter that is dealt with in this 18th verse of this 6th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And the authorities proceeded to discuss it. And I'll summarize for you more or less what they said. I can put it under three headings. The first was that you can have the Christian qualities without believing the Christian doctrine. That you can hold on to the Christian ethic but reject the Christian dogma, the Christian doctrines. That was the first step. That was the case of Lord Burkett himself, of course. He holds on to the ethics, he rejects all the doctrines. And these reasserted that and said that this was something that was possible. 
The second point they made was that any idea of compulsion or of a sanction in the realm of morals is wrong. And that the very idea of authority in connection with morals immediately makes it cease to be moral. Morality, said one of them, means your responsibility for yourself. And he wouldn't have this idea of compulsion or of any authority or of any sanction. Morality, he said, is your responsibility for yourself. And it's therefore something self-contained. But there was a third statement. And I'm quoting the exact words of one of these authorities, these great brains. He said, belief in redemption is antithetical to morality. Now, that's not my statement, it's his. He said, belief in redemption is antithetical to morality. He explained what he meant. He said this, the idea of something being done for you, the idea of you are being delivered without your doing anything, he said, does away with the sense of individual responsibility. It is the negation of all moral effort and striving. He says that's been the curse. This preaching of redemption, this idea that you can be delivered, that it's done for you. Why, he says, it's the death of moral effort and moral endeavor and any moral striving. And therefore, he said, that this idea of redemption is actually antithetical and opposed to morality. Now then, let me try to show you how the apostle in this verse that we're dealing with this evening answers all that. And it's very important that I think we should be able to answer it. And I would do so in this way. We start by agreeing that moral teaching is not confined to the Bible. There is much moral teaching outside the Bible. We are perfectly well aware of that. The ancient Greek philosophers, they taught their ethic and they taught their morality. And there are men who have made lists of the teachings of some of these great Greek philosophers. They've put it on one side of the ledger and they've put the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the ethical teaching of the Bible on the other. And it's astounding to notice the similarity between the two. Therefore we agree that moral and ethical teaching is not peculiarly Christian. You can have it altogether outside Christianity. We are agreed about that. Further, we do know as a matter of fact that there have been many men and many systems of thought in the past that having read the New Testament have admired the teaching and the ethic and have borrowed from it, have incorporated it into their own systems and have done their utmost to live it and to practice it. And that is something which can be done up to a point. So, up until this point, we are in, agreed, in agreement with what has been said. But, and now this is where this verse answers the position. To say in the light of all this, that you can hold on to the Christian ethic, the Christian way of life, the Christian qualities, without the doctrines, to say that, I say, is based upon an inadequate view of what the Christian ethic really is and as to what the Christian qualities really are. 
Now, it was interesting to notice these people in their discussion. They, in dis defining the Christian ethic and the Christian qualities, they talked about kindliness, about consideration for other people, a desire to help, and about avoiding moral evil, trying to live a good and a clean and a straight and a moral life. Now, they confined their definition of the Christian qualities and the Christian ethic entirely to that. And that is, of course, where they go so hopelessly astray. Because the Christian life, the Christian qualities, the Christian ethic cannot be confined to that. It goes entirely beyond that. Into what realm? Well, it goes into the realm, for instance, of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They didn't say a word about that. Oh, just kindliness, brotherliness, friendliness, philanthropy, and avoiding gross sins. But that isn't the end of the Christian qualities. That isn't the end of the Christian ethic. It goes on to these beatitudes. It goes on to 1 Corinthians 13. Not a word was said about that. This great principle of love and of charity. You can know everything. You can even give your body to be burned if you haven't got charity. It's of no value. It's nothing. It's of no value at all. Not a word was said about that. This whole quality of love, controlling one's actions and thoughts and motives and everything else. Indeed, they had no conception as to the meaning of the Christian word righteousness. What does it mean? Well, I've already reminded you. Let me repeat it. To be righteous in the New Testament sense means that you live to the glory of God, that you live to please Him. It includes your motives, it includes your desires. Indeed, our Lord himself put it like this. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What's the Christian ethic? What are the Christian qualities? I can put it in one word. It is holiness. And holiness means to be like God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It's not just just being nice and gentlemanly and affable and friendly and doing a good turn. No, no. It goes infinitely above it. It includes this quality of holiness which makes us, I say, like God. Well, listen again to our Lord putting it. When he was asked by a lawyer, what is the first and the greatest commandment? His reply, you remember, was this. Not that you just be kind and brotherly and friendly, no. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first. And he said the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now that's the Christian ethic and those are the summaries of the Christian qualities. And is it possible for a man to attain to that and shed the Christian doctrines? Well, let us listen to the answer of the Apostle Paul. This is what he says. There is none righteous. No, not one. But these men claim that they can do it. Paul goes on to say, All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Paul says, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me? The evil that I would not that I do, and all the rest of it. He then adds what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. It couldn't do it. 
And then you notice in Philippians 3, he looks back at his old life when he thought he was doing so well and when he thought that as regards the demands of the law he was perfect. What does he say of it now? He says, I count it as but dung. In other words, you see, the apostle says, I once thought that I could do all this, but now I find I can't. And when did he find it? Well, he says in the seventh chapter of this epistle to the Romans in verse 9, he says, as long as I was only looking at the letter of the law, I thought I was all right. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I was a complete and an utter and an absolute failure. Now that is the reply of the Apostle Paul, but he's not alone. Listen to Charles Wesley. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Listen to Top Lady confirming. He says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. What does it mean? Well, I sum it up like this. Let's not be misled by the distinguished character of these gentlemen. It's got nothing to do with the argument at all. Still less, I hope, that none of us will be misled by uh, the beautiful vice of uh, men like Lord Burkett and his beautiful diction, as people say, and what a fine man he is, because what we have to say about these good men is just this. They are nothing but Pharisees. But surely, says someone, you can't call them Pharisees. What else can you call them? Listen, here is the position. These are men who claim that in their own strength and power, without any of the aid of the Christian gospel, they can practice and live the Christian ethic. They say they can do it. We've seen what the Apostle Paul says. We've seen what the great saints of the centuries have said. Here are men who claim that they can do it. I see them represented perfectly in our Lord's parable of the Pharisee and the publican that went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee went right forward to the front and he said, I thank God that I'm not like as other men are, and especially like this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give a tenth of my goods to the poor. He doesn't ask for forgiveness, he doesn't need it. He's such a good man. He's carrying out the ethic. He's a moral man, and he just thanks God that he is as he is. Now, I'm not being unfair to these gentlemen. Because that was precisely what they were saying. If you say that you can carry out and practice the Christian ethic without the Christian doctrine, that is exactly what you're saying, and nothing less. And therefore I say that the ultimate verdict upon such persons in such a view is that it is Phariseeism of the worst type. What is it due to? How do they fall into this error? Well, it is the ancient error of the Pharisees. It was the error of Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. It is this. What the Pharisees did, you remember, was they picked out certain of the dictates of the law and as long as they were not guilty of those particularly, particular prescribed sins, they thought they were perfect. Paul thought that he was perfect. They took the letter of the law. They never understood anything about the spirit of the law at all. 
But having defined the law in their terms, not in God's terms, having brought up their little definition of it, they carried it out and they thought they were perfect. What's the matter with them? The matter with them is that they've never understood the spirit of the law and the real purpose of the law. Listen to Paul putting it in chapter 10 of this great epistle. For they, he says, speaking about such people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They've never seen the need of a savior. Why? Because their view of God's law is inadequate. It isn't God's law. It's their little law. They call it God's law, but it's theirs. Their own righteousness, not the righteousness of God. You see, they've never had the experience that Paul has, which makes him say, I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, when I saw that the law spoke about coveting and desire, well, I saw I was condemned. I died. Sin revived, and I died. Very well. There is my answer on the first count. This attitude is Pharisees, and it is based upon a terrible and a tragic failure to understand the real meaning of God's law. But come to the second matter. This idea that a man is responsible for himself alone, and that morality means a man's responsibility for his own self, and that there mustn't be any sanctions or anything like that. What of this? Well, I have a number of questions to ask here. What is it that determines a man's view of himself? What is myself? Is there any objective standard by, whereby I can know that my view of myself is right? If morality is just my own responsibility for myself, the first thing I want to know is, well, what am I? What should I be? What is the true idea of the self? And according to what was said by these authorities, every man decides that for himself. And so, you see, you're landed in this position. That anything that I say is right for me is right, but another man says the exact opposite. There's a clash immediately. And what do you then do about these differing views and these different standards? The position you arrive at is one of complete anarchy and of chaos. You're back in the position of the book of Judges when there was no king in Israel and every man did that was right in his own eyes. That is chaos, that is anarchy. Why, even the most primitive societies denounce such a view. Even the most primitive tribes have got their tribal laws, their tribal rules, they've got their taboos. You can't dress as you like amongst them. They, they have, why, why have they got their rules? Well, sheer necessity has forced them to do so. You cannot live life in society without having definitions, without having laws, without having rules, without having orders. Even the most primitive society has found them to be essential. Every other form of society has found them equally essential. A police force is as necessary in Great Britain tonight as it's ever been. The magistrates and the courts are as necessary as they've ever been. Why? Because you can't leave it to a man himself. If a man is alone to himself, you have nothing but anarchy and chaos. But not only is this wrong, it is also entirely selfish. I mean this. 
that the Christian ethic and the Christian way of life says that a man must not be content merely with doing what he thinks is right. He must also consider other people. Conscience, says the apostle, not thine own, but of the other also. I mustn't say, because this thing is right for me, I'm going to do it. What about my weaker brother? What about the other men and his welfare? Now, this theoretical, academic view of morality that was propounded in that discussion takes no concern at all about the weaker brother, about the other men. It is hard, intellectual, self-contained, and entirely lacking in sympathy for the underdog and the failure. It has nothing to say to it. And therefore it is selfish in addition to being wrong. Not only that, I go further. Our own consciences within us tell us not only that there is a need of an external standard and authority, but that there is one. That is why we have remorse. That is why we are miserable when we've done wrong. We know we're wrong. We, didn't, we don't want to feel that, but we can't help it. The voice of conscience compels us to recognize an objective standard outside ourselves. But experience adds to this. Haven't we all had this experience? There were things we were told not to do when we were young, and we disliked it. We objected. We thought we knew, and we said, why shouldn't I do what I want to do? As we've grown older and are more experienced and have more learning, we have come to see that our objection then was quite wrong. And that we needed to be taught and to be trained and to be instructed. And then we draw this inevitable deduction. I still am in that position. I still want more light. So the very fact that I recognize my fallibility and the possibility of my being wrong and the need of training and learning and instruction is in and of itself a proof of the need of an objective standard and some sanction upon your morality. And then finally I clinch that argument in this way. The history of the human race shows abundantly clearly that religion of any sort, with its ultimate sanctions and its threat of punishment of wrongdoing, has always been the greatest moral and moralizing force the greatest keeper of law and order in the whole long history of mankind. I still have one further point. Can you bear with me? If anybody is a train to catch, please don't hesitate to go. But I have one further argument. I must come to this last objection that I may deal with this matter and leave it. The last objection was, you remember, that this doctrine of redemption is antithetical to morality. It's very difficult, you know, to control oneself as one is dealing with these things. I almost wish that I could be a politician for five minutes and deal with this argument and the way in which it was said on that program in the way that it really should be dealt with. With a glibness and a pomposity, it was uttered and stated that redemption is actually antithetical to morality. It was said with a sneer and with an element of laughter. Have you ever heard anything more ridiculous than that? And particularly when the man who said it happens to be a professor of history. The professor of history says that redemption is actually antithetical to morality. What is the answer to him? First of all, the evidence of history.
What is the evidence of history? It is this. That it is the ages which have been most deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine of redemption have been the most moral ages that this country has ever known. Oh, that's sheer fact. Read the secular history of this country. Which have been the periods when you've had most law and order and concern about morality and good conduct and behavior? Here they are, the Elizabethan period. What was that? Oh, that was the period that followed the Protestant Reformation. When these great doctrines came back, especially the doctrine of redemption. They produced a higher level of morality as contrasted with the period before the Reformation. What about the Puritan period? The period in which, you see, they passed these acts of parliament that these authorities object to so much about observing the Sabbath and about uh, cinemas and theaters on Sunday and all the rest of it, these sabbatical laws and so on. But what made the Puritans pass such acts? Why was morality such a great concern in the Puritan period? The answer is simply this. They believed in the doctrine of redemption. They were governed and controlled by these very doctrines that these men want to throw overboard. And then you come on to the 18th century. You get exactly the same thing. Read, I say again, that book, England Before and After Wesley. See the moral condition of this country before that evangelical awakening Look at it afterwards. What produced the difference? What produced the change? What led to the so-called Victorianism and Victorian morality? The answer is the doctrines of grace. The doctrine of redemption. Why, I can even quote another professor of history, Lecky. He says quite categorically that there is no question at all, but that what saved this country from a revolution similar to the one they had in France in 1789 was, none, uh, was nothing but the evangelical awakening. When these very doctrines were preached and were believed by the people. That's the answer of history. But if it's that in general, let us take it in particular also. I do hope my friends are remembering the arguments. Because the arguments are much more important than an immediate feeling. You get exactly the same thing I say with regard to individuals. Isn't this the great testimony of the church? That men who had been slaves to sin and utterly vile and foul and immoral are completely changed and live a new life. What has led to that? Is it that they have decided to adopt the Christian ethic? No, no. It is the doctrine of redemption which they believe and which has been powerful in their lives. In other words, the answer to this contention is that not only is redemption not antithetical to morality, redemption is essential to morality. Why? Let me answer. Redemption is essential to morality because man is, as this verse tells us, a slave to sin by nature. He's not neutral. He's not detached. He doesn't merely take an intellectual view of things. No, no. He's the creature of powerful drives, of this tremendous energy of sin. He's under the dominion of sin. He's under the reign of sin. But they know nothing at all about that. They sit back and take a detached intellectual view. 
I don't know these particular men, but I know others who are like them, who can say these things very glibly intellectually, but when you get to know the facts about their lives, you find that they're not quite as intellectual as they'd have you believe, and are themselves the slaves of lusts and sins and passions. How easy it is to talk about the Christian ethic and adopt it. It comes easily to these men, they're that sort of person. But there are other types of persons. They don't seem to realize that. They've got nothing to say to the man who's born with a hatred of morality and a vile nature. They don't seem to realize that as men and women, we differ in exactly the same way as all the creatures and the animals do. There are some dogs who by nature are nice and friendly and kind and obedient. You have no trouble with them at all. But there's another dog who's the exact opposite. He'll bite at you and snarl at you. Something natural. The same with cats, with every other type of animal. And it's the same of human beings. There's a sort of man who's born a nice man and he's got a natural intellectual interest in morality and ethics and he says, I'm going to live this Christian ethic without your Christian doctrines. But I say, what about the other man who's altogether and entirely different? Where does he come in? What have they to say to him? They have nothing at all. In other words, they don't understand the doctrine of sin. Sin, I say, is a terrible power that is working within us. The trouble with men is not that they want more information about truth and morality and light and right. Our Lord said the trouble is this, that they love darkness and hate the light because their deeds were evil. Now that's the slavery and the power of sin. It isn't merely a matter of deciding calmly to adopt an ethic. Man by nature, he loves the darkness, he hates the light. In some shape or form, every one of us. In other words, man, as he is by nature, is completely helpless. What he needs is not good advice, not good teaching. He needs somebody to help him. He needs something to help him. He needs deliverance. It's his nature that's wrong, not his mind only. And his fundamental need is the need of power. Now it is at this point that all these clever gentlemen fail so completely. Oh, intellectually, they're interested in ethics, and they say that they can practice it. I've shown you what a small little ethic it is, but wait a minute. Let's confront them suddenly by a helpless, hopeless drunkard. Let's, let's confront them by a man who's taken so much drugs that he's lost his willpower. Let's give him a man who's striven with all his might to live a better life, but who only goes down repeatedly in failure. What have they got to say to him? Oh, they've got nothing to say to him, except that he ought to be practicing this excellent ethic. They've no power to give him. They don't understand him even. They've got no hope to give him. Is there then no hope for such a man? There is. But where is it? It is only in the doctrine of redemption. The only thing that can make this hopeless failure moral and ethical is redemption. What do I mean by that? I mean that God alone can help him. The trouble with this man is that he is estranged from God. And nothing will avail him until God delivers him. And the whole message of the New Testament, these doctrines that they want to throw overboard and about which they're agnostic, are the very doctrines which tell us how God has done it. How has he done it? By sending his own son.
Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, your doctrine of the Incarnation. And he not only came and taught and lived, but he died upon the cross as we've seen in this sixth chapter. It is his dying once and forever for sin that enables us to die to it and to be freed from it. There's redemption, substitutionary atonement. He bore our sins. He's conquered that. He's delivered us. That's the way. And likewise with his resurrection. And likewise with the doctrine that he gives us a new nature and a new birth and a new start and puts his spirit to dwell within us who works in us and gives us power. What is all this? This is the way in which a man is delivered and set upon his feet. And how do I know it? I know it only by these Christian doctrines. There is no deliverance. There is no morality. Apart from this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even by the law, you had nothing but the knowledge of sin. But now, this new thing has come in. This redemption, this grace of God, this righteousness as a free gift from God the Father. And you see, this does it because by working in us, it creates within us desires after morality and holiness. The pundit says, redemption is antithetical to morality. The New Testament says, redemption creates within men a hunger and thirst after righteousness. It creates longings after morality and holiness in him. Not only that, it provides him with a supreme motive to live the moral life. What's that? It is gratitude. It is love. He realizes that Christ has done all this for him. He wants to show his gratitude. It's the greatest incentive to please him who has died for us and given himself in our place. And above all, it provides us with the necessary power to believe in the doctrines of redemption. Far from producing a lazy, immoral, irresponsible creature who is indolent and who doesn't apply himself does the exact opposite as the lives of all the saints testify and as the death of all the martyrs proves to the very hilt. Redemption, antithetical to morality. No, says Isaac Watts. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This isn't compulsion. This is joyous freedom. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. But that isn't serfdom. His service is perfect freedom. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And nothing gives a man the joy of the Lord as does an understanding of the doctrines of redemption and a feeling and an experiencing of their powers. I apologize for having kept you at such great length this evening, but I felt that in view of the verse that we happen to be dealing with, and the great concern that I'm assured has been caused to many people by this particular statement on the program, I felt that I owed it to you to show you the relevance of the Apostles' teaching at this point in all the details of our daily life.
Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come into thy presence to thank thee that thou hast not left us to ourselves. O God, we bless thy name that these things which thou hast hid from the wise and prudent thou hast revealed unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. We thank thee that whereas not many wise men after the flesh not many mighty, not many noble are called. Thou hast called the nothings and the ignorant and the things that are not to confound the things that are mighty. O oh God, we thank thee that while we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. O oh, we bless thee for the grand redemption and that in thy mercy thou hast given us an exposition and an explanation of this glorious redemption in these doctrines taught in these epistles. O oh God, have mercy upon the pride, the foolish pride and arrogance of men, the natural men who receive not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are foolishness unto them, and because they cannot receive them because they are spiritually discerned. God, have mercy upon them and open their blind eyes and enable them to see themselves and then to see and to believe in and to receive the riches of thy grace so freely given in Jesus Christ our Lord. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us. Now, this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.